Hello and welcome to the Next Level Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Miller, with my BFF, JVL. On the Sunday show this week, we've got the great Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, a member of the PayPal Mafia, a good member of the PayPal Mafia, a founding member of OpenAI, which developed ChatGPT. He's currently a partner at the venture capital firm Greylock Partners. We talk a lot about AI. We also do a little Elon Musk gossip, a little PayPal Mafia gossip. You're going to really love it. But before we get to read JVL, we had some news on Thursday. There's a new Republican in the race, a good Republican, so to speak. Will Hurd, representative of Texas. I was not able to do Charlie's pod on Friday because he had Tim O'Brien, the other Tim, on instead. So I <sighs> other Tim, competitive Tim. We love Tim O'Brien. And so I felt like we just let's just do it. Let's just riff on Will Hurd, and then we can get to the nerdy AI talk with Reed. So uh, quarter is going in the machine. You're up. Will Hurd for president. No likey. No likey. Look, here's the thing. I bet that if Will Hurd lived next door to me, we would be buddies. We'd be barbecuing together every weekend. I like him a lot. I've never met the guy, but I like him as a political commodity. I like where he's at policy-wise. I like where he's at temperament-wise. He seems like a serious guy, a good guy, the kind of guy who in a in a good world would be president. Yeah. Right? He'd be a great, Amen. great president in an imaginary world. He opens his ad, his launch video, by talking about how the soul of America is being attacked. Who's attacking the soul? Well, and, you know, the inflation is out of control and crime and homelessness are increasing in our cities. And the liberals don't care, and Joe Biden either can't or won't do anything about it. And I'm like, fuck this guy. Uh, I look, but I don't mean that because I like. That was him. just what, that's just like what came up Here's in your in your body. When, like it was just your initial reaction before it got to your brain. Before you're able to moderate yourself. Literally last week, inflation at the lowest rate in two years. Just within the last two weeks, we have gotten preliminary murder rate numbers, and it is one of the steepest declines in American history year over year, down like 12% in the big cities. Nonviolent crime has been trending down anyway. Homelessness. Homelessness has been flat since 2020. Actually, it went up. Homelessness increased a little bit from 2017 to 2020. I don't know if you remember who was in power during those years. And and is that the Obama? It has been flat. Well, these things are lies, and this is what bothers me. If Sarah was here, Sarah would say, "JVL, the guy's running for the Republican nomination. You don't run for the Republican nomination by saying like Joe Biden, pretty great, the way JVL always says, or pretty good, right? I would stipulate to that. True. I would also say that I could, you know, tick off five different reasons why a Republican could absolutely legitimately criticize the Biden administration. They're not perfect. Lots of problems. But here's the thing. I understand saying, look, I can't be totally candid and totally honest because I'm running for president and my goal is to win the nomination and then to achieve good. And if I have to exaggerate flaws in the Biden administration to do that, then that is in the service of doing better things for all Americans. I would get that. Will Hurd is going to get two fucking percent. And you should get your two percent honestly and not by contributing to the dishonesty. Because net net, 
if even going out doing your little 2% campaign, you are having to pretend this kabuki theater that Joe Biden is a socialist and the Democratic Party has gone off the rails and all this stuff, then actually you're not contributing to the net good. You're making everything worse. I'm sorry. I, you know, not, I need my Shavasana now. Yeah, and particularly because the types of people that are listening to you aren't MAGA voters. This is the crux of the a very good faith and honest debate that me and Charlie have on this on this regard with Christy. It's like the people that are listening to Heard and Christy, for the most part, are gettable Joe Biden voters. Yeah. Heard launches this thing on CBS this morning. USA Today called me and said, Well, isn't all the media that he's getting gonna gonna help him break <laughs> through? And I'm like, Get it through your head. Republican primary voters don't watch nuanced debates on CBS this morning. They don't. There's a handful of Republican, you know, 2 3%, 4% of the Republican primary vote that does, right? There are some people, and then there's a bigger portion of who you're thinking of when you think of Republicans, and that's like my buddy Kevin, you know, that I went to college with that's a business guy and like doesn't pay attention to politics that much. Like they're not Republican primary voters. They are swing voters. They're the Brian Kemp, Warnock yeah. swing voters that I'm talking about. And so those are the people that actually listen to Will Hurd because they listen to podcasts and they watch CBS this morning. Now you're kind of influencing them with your Biden rhetoric and maybe helping contaminate their view of Joe Biden. If Will Hurd was on Newsmax, and he's saying, I'm a real conservative and Donald Trump is awful and we got to do anything to stop him if we want to get conservative policies and close the border. And I'm from Texas. We got to keep them Mexicans out. Like, OK, then you're doing some good, maybe. OK, then you're doing some good because you're getting through to people that need to be moved off of Trump. Right. That's not who he's talking to. There's the idea that there's this imaginary Republican primary voter out there that is reasonable and listening to reason debate. Like, that's a very tiny slice of the Republican primary electorate that's already overserved right now because they have Pence, they've got Scott, they've got Haley, they've got Christie, they've got Heard, they've got all these people to choose from. And, and it's only like 10% of the part. That frustrates me as well. I kind of feel like I just maybe once a week need to retweet the Red Dog article that I wrote. Yeah. People mm -hmm. need to reread this. It was called The Trade. And this is important to understand. And this is the thing that Will Heard doesn't understand. And I think that some people in our world just don't want to just really take in which is that the type of person that likes Will Hurd has already left the Republican Party. I'm thinking in my mind oh, yeah. of the people in my life who aren't political, who are just like my cousins, my brothers, my friends from high school, like who, who might be the type of person to pull the trigger for Will Hurd. They're not Republicans anymore. Like maybe they'll vote for a Republican from time to time, you know, if they live in a certain state or a certain district or they have this crazy, right? Okay. As far as national politics is concerned, they've already left because they don't have any skin in the game. Like they're not part of the Twitter wars where they're on a team and they feel like they have to defend their team. They're, they're not making money from politics. They're not in the commentariat. They're not lobbyists, right? They don't have it. So they already left. It wasn't hard for them to leave. They weren't leaving anything, you know? These people, the voters that Will Heard would appeal to, are in the other party or their independence. Yeah, that's where his constituency is. Yeah, or their independence. Like that, that is the reality. It, it already happened. And, and, and I, as much as you wish they were still in the Republican, are there still some? Sure. You know, every time I say this, somebody replies to me and they'll reply on Twitter. They'll be like, Tim, you know, I'm a Will Hurd voter that is still a Republican and I live in New Hampshire. And I'm like, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. But 
You're also the type of person that's listening to the Next Level podcast. So you're an extremely high information political consumer. (laughs) You know, like top 0.1% level political consumer. And you have a very deeply ingrained ideology, which most voters don't have. You've read, you know, William F. Buckley. You've read Hayek. You know, you have opinions. There might be 5,000 of you in New Hampshire. Yeah, you have opinions. about. So so you exist. And then if you expand that to the whole country, there might be 200,000 of you. There might be 500,000. There might be enough of you to sustain multiple media outlets like – our friends of the dispatch, or maybe some of you are even a little further over the National Review. So you feel like there's a lot of you, but as far as an electoral force, there aren't that many of you. And there certainly aren't enough of you in the Republican primary. There's much, much more a number of people who are kind of like casually centrist, center-right. Like, I love taxes. It could be cut. I'd like the government to get off my back. I voted for Bush. I voted for Obama. Like, there are a lot of those people, but they're not Republicans anymore because Donald Trump's been president and the Republican Party grosses them the fuck out. That's where he fits now. That's his voter, not the Iowa caucuses, obviously. Here's what I don't understand. From the level of pure self-interest, Will Hurd would have a better career ahead of him as a centrist Democrat than as a Republican with no party. Maybe he doesn't believe that, JBL. That's what people say. He doesn't believe that. He can't do it. He can't do it because— He wouldn't have to change his policies. He has such deeply held views on these things. On what? On free trade? On energy, on strict immigration. He's right where Texas Democrats are on energy. This is Texas Democrats are right where he is on energy. You know, maybe California Democrats are not. Texas Democrats are right where he is. I would be interested to see Will Hurd take a test. Colin Allred, Will Hurd, and Ted Cruz take a test. We give them who's closer to who? Test. We give them twenty questions. Who's closer to who? My guess is like square in the middle of them. I'm sorry. I said mean things about Will Hurd. I don't really mean it. Again, I don't know the guy, but I feel like I do, and like I want to like him because good human being, good political actor. Wish him the best. I hope he wins the Republican nomination. He's not going to. Really and truly. It would be great for America if Will Hurd was the Republican nominee in 2024. I think that he has as a fatal flaw that he is simply not hard-headed enough. One of the things that he says often, Republicans, if they keep clinging to this stolen election BS, uh, then they can't win elections going forward. And they have to come to grips with the fact that Trump lost and that until they do that, they can't win going forward. And that may be true, but I'm not convinced that it's 100% true. And this idea that when you have a hard choice in front of you to frame it as the right thing also being the expedient thing means that it's not a hard choice at all, right? It's like, oh, we'll get more votes by doing the right thing. Great. We should just do the right thing. But it's not clear to me that that's where the Republican Party truly finds themselves. I think that they probably have to, at the very least, pretend to believe that the election was stolen, because if they don't, they're going to lose a bunch of voters who are convinced the election was stolen. And maybe they can even do a little bit of light denialism and still win the presidency in 2024. And Hurd's inability to understand that hard choices are born out of expediency clashing with the right thing is, I think, a real weakness, well, certainly in a politician and may- maybe in a leader. Maybe not. Maybe you want most people who are just optimistic and, you know, calling us to be our better selves all the time. And I do want that. But I think, you know, who else wants that? Democrats. I, again, I just this thing, this thing. Drives me. Are, are there parts of the Democratic Party that have gone extreme? Sure. Like if you look at like the state legislatures in certain states, have they gone like are there concern in ten or fifteen years from now? Might the Democratic Party be reconstitute itself in such a way that it would be unwelcoming to somebody like Will Hurd? Sure. But that's not where we are today. 
his whole argument is we need to be serious. We need to, you know, look at the data. That's what I'm saying to you about, about our politics. Be serious. Look at the data. And like, you're not going to be able to convince these people over. This ties into our RFK thing, right? And now the RFK situation is different because it's an op, you know, run to hurt Joe Biden. Right. But there's a lot of people out there who just are unwilling because this has been the way life has been for so long or unable because of the incentives of their punditry, you know, or just wish casting, right? That like, we're going to go back to a place where a anti-vaxxer who's a green hippie is in the Democratic Party and, you know, an, a, a, what is the pink, a pink eye shade? What, what's the eye shade? Green eye uh, shade. The green, green eye, eye shade. shade. I was like, where did the pink eye shade come from? That's a LG, it's gay pride month. A green <laughs> eye shade, you know, person who wants to end the culture wars would be a nice fit in the Republican Party. And it's like, no. Those changes have already happened. They're not completely finished, as you pointed out in a newsletter this week. There's still a handful of people who are late to the party on this realignment. But the realignment is not going back. You know, the reality is RFK would do better in the Republican primary. And, and Will Hurd wouldn't have any chance in the Democratic Party because he didn't impeach Trump. But somebody like Will Hurd, had they given a real primary against Joe Biden. Gone all right is basically like Will Hurd, right? Yeah. Yeah. But had somebody like that who had left earlier than Will Hurd, like a Jeff Flake said, I'm going to challenge Joe Biden in a primary. Now, he wouldn't win. But he would he could probably get eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent, which is like six X what he would get in a Republican primary. Is there a near future in which a guy like Will Hurd hangs up his team jacket? His shtick, when he when he's pressed on this, he always says, look, you can't define the Republican Party by just a handful of these loud national voices like the former president. The real Republican Party is the voters and the people. They just want normal, yes. sensible things. No. Like if Donald Trump is the nominee again and Will gets his 2%, Come November 2024, is he still going to be like, yeah, no, or is he just going to either tap out or decide finally that he does have to switch sides? Yeah, no, I'm telling you. You think he just stays Republican no matter what? Yeah, I don't think there's anything that can shake these people loose. Like if Donald Trump wins the nomination and loses again, then all these people will be like, okay, finally we're out. That only took nine years. All right. All right. Now we can now we can move forward. Just a decade. Yeah. And it's like they don't realize that like a lot of things changed in that decade. The types of people that are attracted to the Republican Party changed in that decade. The types of people that are attracted to the Democratic Party changed in that decade. Their interests, the issues that they care about changed. And so they're going to say, OK, great, we're going to do this again. And we'll, we're going to ride this baby again into 2028. And, you know, there will be five people again running for an 8% lane. And, you know, the best case scenario is a Ron DeSantis type person. The worst case scenario is a Candace Owens, Don Jr. type person is the winner. That's what the party is. And maybe over time it can change. And I'm sympathetic to the argument that says, isn't it better to try to change the party? Yes, there are smart ways to do it, right? Yeah. And there are ways which don't contribute to the net negatives in our polity. Yeah. Right. In Louisiana, we have a top two primary. I would love for somebody like Will Hurd to run against Jeff Landry in the Louisiana governor's race, right? We have a center-right Republican who played a little too much footsie for Trump for my taste, but is ultimately good. They were running in Louisiana. They might have a chance to win this governor's race, right? That would be a smart way to engage. We could move the party back a little bit. We'd get this governorship. I could have a coalition of normal Republicans and Democrats, and maybe we can upend the MAGA Republican. Again, the Texas suggestion that I made, there are smart ways to do this, pretending like there's this, you know, big, massive wave of 
support for Will Hurd and the National Party, that's not a smart way to do it. I would love nothing more to be wrong. I'm de- as is not a, even a hint of sarcasm. If I woke up on New Hampshire primary day and there were a ton of people that were outside of my field of vision that demanded a change within the party, I will eat a hat joyfully. Joyfully. And I will, and I, and I will get a amazing. tattoo of whoever wins the New Hampshire primary and I'll do everything I can to help them. I don't think I'm wrong. Really quite, quite, quite certain I'm not wrong, actually. But I would love to be. All right. Up next, the great Reed Hoffman. It is an awesome conversation. You're going to really enjoy it. We'll be back here on Wednesday. Make sure you've subscribed, you've liked, you've commented, you send to a friend, all of that. Here comes Reed. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hey, welcome back to the Sunday Next Level. I'm here with my buddy JVL and the great Reed Hoffman. Reed, thanks for doing this, man. Awesome to be here. We want to spend most of this podcast on artificial intelligence and AI, but if you know anything about the Bulwark, we have to start on the other end of the intelligence spectrum first and talk a little bit about the bad orange man, if that's okay with you. Otherwise known as natural stupidity, but yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You have been, for people who don't know, a extremely active supporter of various democracy initiatives. You spent, I think, roughly a gajillion dollars, give or take, to support anti-Trump and pro-democracy efforts legal funds, direct money for Joe Biden, turnout programs. You supported media outlets like this one, I should mention. So I want to know, my first question is a tough one. Why? Like, what is separating you from the other rich guys out there that are spending money on yachts? What has been the inspiration for getting into that part of the world? Well, it's fairly straightforward. It's actually not a tough question. It's a question of the sense of, you know, who are you and how do you contribute to the world around you and the society? And that life is about, you know, kind of, being a good person and contributing to people around you. It's like, what can I do? Not just for yourself. It doesn't mean you have to be, you have to ignore yourself, but also for, you know, everything that starts with like family and friends to community, to world, to humanity at large. And one of the most central things that we should pride ourselves on is the kind of core idea of America is kind of rule of law, of a kind of a sense of decency, but not in a shallow sense, in a deep sense, relative to, you know, how do we kind of craft a society in which, you know, all individuals can flourish and that we're seeking to kind of elevate humanity. We're seeking to live in a society where individuals can express not just their talents, but their personality. And to do that, we live in a collective society with a democracy, with a rule of law, and that that is fundamental. It's not red versus blue. It's not, you know, all, you know, all of these kind of like just foolish and blind equivalences that are made. It's a question of living in a decent society. And I'll trade every single yacht for, you know, a kind of a healthy society, a society that that gives people a chance to express their best selves and their and their better selves, which, you know, fortunately sometimes comes down to nuts and bolts like a genuine election, like we had in 2020, not inciting treason and, you know, an insurrection that killed police officers by you know, attacking elected members of our democracy. I mean, it just, if you'd ever said to me that I'd be living in America where this would be the issue, I would have said, no, 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 that story is too black mirror, too strange. And so I think everyone needs to step up because how do we get to a society that we're all proud to be living in? And America is always an ideal is we step up together. And that's, you know, it's an easy question. 
Reid, what is your threat assessment level for American democracy and where we are right about now? Uh, I think it's super high. Just like I think both of you, I find myself puzzled by the fact that because of the Dominion lawsuit on Fox, you find like public through court subpoena records text of the fact that they go, you know, Trump is terrible and we know we're lying about it on, on television and so forth. And yet people don't update, you know, a number of people don't update their points of view and they say, oh, just politics. I mean, you had this absurd editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying, well, you know, if the DOJ is used to indict Trump, that's just, you know, collapsing it into politics. And you're like, well, you're just making that assertion. You're not using any facts. You're not using any evidence or any argument for that. And actually, it's more important than, than not that rule of law applies to the powerful, not just to the working class, but to everybody. And that's part of the America we're proud in. So I think the threat is actually quite high. I mean, I think it's, you know, maybe since the Civil War, we are in as much of a fight for the democracy, for the soul of a rule of law for our country than we've been in the entire time. I mean, I never would have thought of myself saying, wow, Trump and his MAGA crowd is rehabilitating Richard Nixon. Oh, Richard Nixon, he was a piker, you know, in the assault of democracy. Yeah. You know, it's like, who knew? But anyway, so it's very serious and I think everyone needs to focus on it. Can you just level set for just the listeners who, you know, um, about, you know, what your politics is and as far as your engagement in this, like, in, you know, for George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, I imagine you weren't, you know, spending million dollars in that election back in that. I forget when you made your money, but, you know, I mean, uh, can you just take us back to like what your politics had been in the pre-Trump world? So my politics is actually the same, which is we want to have a country in which everyone can do their best contributions, their best work. It's part of the benefit of the belief in the individual, belief in entrepreneurship, belief in the frontier, part of what is so awesome about the American ideal. And we want to enable that for everybody and across society. It's that. And so it's been somewhat more Democrat than Republican, but there's been a number of Republicans that I've donated to, advised, and so forth, because my view is find a great leader who is believing in that ideal, who is kind of what should we do? Like I have dinner with Jeb Bush every so often. It's like, what matters to education? You know, Jeb's awesome on this. And to support that and make that happen. Now, part of the reason I stepped in at a level of more intensity is because, you know, Trump is only about Trump. It's so clear. And it's like, whatever it is, I have a healthcare plan, you know, and here we are, after his administration, and we still don't see any, like, one iota of a healthcare plan. And it just, you know, is instances of, like, you know, how can you tell he's lying? His lips are moving. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing, right? It's an American. It's a rule of law thing, yeah. right? There, there's an enormous number of Republicans even today that I gladly work with as a function of let's make a better society. But, you know, you have to kind of say a better society is not the corrosion on the rule of law, not the corrosion on anything that approximates an attempt at healthy governance. Is Jeb also concerned that you have TDS? I think he's a little concerned that I have Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> but um, I don't know if he's—I don't know if he's also judged you in that category or, he, or not. He might have, because <laughs> I keep trying to drag him into it, and he's like, "No, no, no, it'll pass." Uh, I'm like, 
No, it go. passes because we throw him off the bus. <laughs> I've got one more question for you. JBL's champing at the bit on uh, on AI, uh, but I have to do this on politics. So uh, book plug here for me, not you. I wrote a book, as you might know, about trying to assess why the people who knew better, you know, the smart people went along with Trump in the political world, you know, not focusing on the MAGAs, but getting at why people decide to enable him. And so now I want to ask you to do the same for your PayPal mafia buddies. <laughs> Why explain to me what has gotten into Elon and Keith and Peter and David and that whole crew. If you like me know all of those first names, you might need to log off, but I know that Reed does. <laughs> I do know all of those first names. I think it's different in the different cases. I think Peter is so worried that the sclerosis of the bureaucracy of democracy and everything else, I mean, I don't have this directly from him, sure. I'm modeling what he's doing. I'm not quoting him, but like, you know, needs a wrecking ball. And, you know, it's like if you get a any wrecking ball, even a gross wrecking ball, I disagree with him intensely, but that would be my model of how Peter's thinking about this. David, I think has been a kind of a classic red versus blue, like our side, Republican, you know, kind of thing for the entire time I've known him. And so I would model more along that, you know, kind of line. And then team player category and why we did it. So yeah. we can just throw him right in there. Yes. <laughs> right. And then um, Elon, part of it is he accomplishes against great adversity. Like I told him he could never make the space business work. And, you know, there was a fool in the room. It wasn't him. It was me. <laughs> um, he goes against blowback. And I think part of his turn is he thinks it's all rational, it's not emotional. His turn is towards, you know, like having the Democrats do dumbass things like have a electric vehicle conference where they don't invite him. And you're like, he reinvented the industry, people. I understand that the unions are unhappy with Tesla, but if you're gonna have an EV conference, Elon is guest number one, two, and three. And I think he's responding to all of that. More sad for all of us, given, you know. Uh, personal. Yeah, given Twitter. Becoming, now, personal snubs, hey, we all have had them. Yeah. You don't usually then say, hey, maybe fascism. You know, I got snubbed <laughs> by <laughs> Joe Biden for an invite. I've been snubbed for invites, but I haven't thrown in for fascism. I said that in the book. I saw that in my friends. I would be shocked. We'd have a couple beers and they'd be like, I'm just so pissed that my wife's friend thinks I'm a racist now. And it's like, okay, well, you could help that by not trying to elect <laughs> racists anymore rather than yes. going even further, you know. Anyway, okay. Um, more Elon gossip another time. JVL, do you want to move us over to the AI side of things? So you have co-written, Reed, with ChatGPT for Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. It's a really interesting book. I should level set my own self here. You know, in VC world, they say that uh, pessimists look smart and optimists get rich. I would be an outstanding tail risk management guy at a VC fund. I would be a terrible partner because I walk into a room and I look around and I think what's going to fall on my head. So, and you are you know, a classic optimist and you make a very, very good bull case for AI. And instead of me trying to sum it up, let me just put a quarter in the machine and let you give the audience your 30-second version of it. So, and obviously we'll get into the details of, could I have read some of your concerns? So I think, by the way, the time concern is a good one, but it also could be turned into amplification. But here's the quick thing, which is the right way to think about artificial intelligence for the line of sight from where we are is it's amplification intelligence. It amplifies human abilities. And the moment that we're in is like a steam engine moment. 
Whereas the earlier steam engine gave us superpowers of muscles, of transport, construction, you know, the entire thing that leads to the kind of industrial revolution and the, the progress that comes from that. Now we're at the steam engine of the mind. And this gives that kind of amplification across a wide number of tasks. And within two to five years, every professional activity, which is you process information and you do something with it, will have a personal intelligence that is a tool that helps you amplify that. It may not be the same one, it may be different ones for different cases, and not everyone will be exactly on. So like, for example, do I think within two to five years, a theoretical physicist will have a personal intelligence that will be helping chart new physics? I think that's unlikely, like they're very unlikely, kind of like, well, asteroid hits the earth, kind of unlikely, but will that theoretical physicist have a tool that will help uh, with grant writing and with, you know, kind of other kinds of things that will give them more time to be giving thought to theoretical physics? The answer is yes. Every professional will ha be having tools to help them do that. And, you know, part of the thing that I think that we, in kind of all the discussion, the risks, because, you know, it's kind of are the robots coming for us, you know, kind of roughly, is actually as amplification intelligence, it's not just an amplifier of good people in good activities, like for example, I have a line of sight to every smartphone being a medical assistant and a tutor for every ages and everything, you know, and it's kind of the thing that we want to get to everybody as fast as possible. But obviously it could be used by cyber criminals, it can be used by state actors, it could be these kind of things. And just like the steam engine, the workforce transformation is uncomfortable. And I, you know, here's the simplest way that I can put the discomfort to people, which is, look, I get it. If you said you might be fired or you might get a raise, everyone goes, I'd rather stay exactly where I am, <laughs> right? Because the, the, the two yeah, things right. in terms of where they are. Human nature. Human yeah. nature. Yeah. But the, the short answer is you say, look, if we're helping with the transition and all the rest and your job's transitioning, and that does feel vertigo, does feel uncertain. If you look through like an amplification intelligence kind of company and you say, well, sales, the 10x everybody, 10x amplifying salespeople. It's like, well, great, we want more salespeople, we don't last. Marketing people, you're going to want as much marketing as you before. Now you'll have a little bit less data entry and a little bit more conceptualization brand. You know, same thing in like, you know, product development or legal or finance. Customer service will be more challenging because if you 10x customer service people and it's cost center, you'll probably go down to a tenth. And that's something where we need to have AI help us with the job transitions and other kinds of things. And maybe there will be some things that will be useful there. But, you know, it's a amplifier. And that amplification, while I think it's, by and way, largely bull case optimist, as you mentioned, doesn't mean that there isn't things to navigate. Yeah. So, I mean, there are plenty of places where it is glaringly obvious that AI can be almost nothing but a help. Medical is a big one. You talk about this in your book. There are places where it becomes a little hazy. And there are places where it's clear negative, right? Uh, you know, malicious coders using AI to, to write code, that sort of thing. The hazy stuff is the most interesting. You have a whole chapter on journalism. I refuse to ever even use a human intern because I feel like I can't trust them enough. And so it's hard for me to imagine using an AI in what I do. But more, it makes me nervous as a news consumer because plenty of people are going to be using AIs to help create journalism. Like that, that is, it's happening right now at the very worst level of journalism, like, you know, content farm journalism. But a year from now, two years from now, I think it'll be, as you say, absolutely an accepted part. I think that it's going to be the way AI developed in chess. Like, remember, Deep Blue came and people thought, oh, when Deep Blue beat Kasparov, people thought, well, the machines are great. But then very quickly it became strong human players with strong AI co-pilots were, were actually even better than strong AI on its own. I worry about how anybody can trust the AI enough. You talked about the hallucinations. And so 
that's what I wanted to push on a little bit here. Talk a little bit about what you call the hallucinations and how we get to a place where you can trust AI enough that it can provide good leverage to the work you're doing rather than forcing you to go and reinvent the wheel every time you go to check what it's saying. So uh, three things in order to this. First is, like, I wouldn't run these AI things autonomously today, right? I think that would be a mistake, sure. <laughs> right? And part of, again, the kind of impromptu universe of person plus machine is to say, look, actually, there's ways we can adapt and then use the machine in various amplification ways. So if you, for example, ask, you know, ChatGPT some specific questions about Reed Hoffman, it may make some assertions that are actually, in fact, false. I've I've done that exact exercise <laughs> where it's had me believing things or inventing things that I didn't do. Like one person uh, found that I, you know, in ChatGPT said, he's a recipient of the Eisenhower Prize. I didn't even know what the Eisenhower Prize was. I had to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Donald <laughs> Trump gave that to himself, actually, yeah, a couple yes, times. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, that's one. But by the way, that doesn't, of course, obviate like I would recommend you use interns and I recommend you use uh, ChatGPT because like, for example, one of the ways that I do it sometimes, think about arguments and so forth, is I go, okay, I load my argument in and I say, argue against this, right? You know, give me the kind of arguments of it. Doesn't mean that you trust that as a factual thing that, you know, Reed Hoffman had the Eisenhower Prize. The conceptual creative framework, if you're getting the prompt stuff, you know, kind of the right way, you can actually get really good things in collaboration. That was part of the, the arc of not just telling with impromptu, but showing. You know, because I don't think there's going to be a lot of really interesting works that are going to be kind of dialogues, or at least anytime soon, between, you know, person X read and ChatGBT. But I wanted to show the work as a way of kind of not just telling the message, but showing the message in terms of how you're operating. The second thing is level of hallucination, which is the hallucination stuff is improving. It's improving on a monthly basis, partially because... People like Microsoft with Bing and Google with Bard. So where they're bringing in search index and so where then they're bringing hallucination down. It's not at a fixed level. There's various ways that's going forward. And then the third is the comparison of human hallucination versus machine hallucination. Like mushrooms? <laughs> yeah, well, that too. I don't know how many journalists are, you know, the LSD type of journalist or peyote or whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> I know you said you didn't like the word and you gave a couple reasons why you didn't like the word hallucinations. I didn't like it because I was like, this sounds fun. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a trouble. This is a problem, not a positive. But anyway, teach that. By the way, it relates to the positive because part yeah. of where this is a useful personal intelligence you know, kind of side is to play that foil to you. Actually, in fact, hallucinate, like you say, you argue against this. And sure, if they give you five arguments and two of them are totally laughably bogus, but one of them was interesting. You hadn't heard that one before and you want to scratch at that a little bit. It's better for, you know, increasing cognition and cognitive thinking. And so like, for example, today, most people don't realize that if you had to pick between your average doctor reading an x-ray film and an AI reading an x-ray film, you'd rather have the AI. Now, of course, you'd rather have both, right? <laughs> right? But you know, as per the chess point. But anyway, so that's, I think, the broad thing. Now, if you're just relying on the hallucination, and then the underlying point, of course, is, you know, obviously people will use this to amplify content farms. We'll have a ton of it. It'll put more pressure on the assertion of truth and belief in the news media ecosystem. And obviously one of the things, all of democracy, how we open up, is that problem, people that want confirmation belief. They want to say, I want to hear that Trump is assaulted by those evil liberals. And so therefore the indictment must be that versus actually, in fact, if you, you heard the FBI arresting a 
you know, a child molester, you'd be like, great. Or Hunter Biden, <laughs> for example. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's like, no, no, it's rule of law is the thing that matters. And so we will have to upgrade to all those because like it's an amplifier, it's an amplifier of bad people. And there's a bunch of bad people who do tons of misinformation and tons of just cheap. We're going to need to work on that all the more. I want to pick at the democracy thing a little bit. All of your high-end, cool possibilities of AI, smart people using it as an assistant to approve their arguments, to get more information, totally agree. But you know, for democracy to survive, we need not regular, averagely smart people, people like me, to not have it be used against them, right? To not be fooled by it. And I suspect neither of you spend as much time as I do on TikTok, but like, I get tricked sometimes. I get tricked. Right, I could read you do do some dances, like buy news stuff, you know. And I'm like, was that real? Was that not real? Now I can figure it out, right? Like anytime I'm like, that seems a little off. I'll check, but that's not a great sign because we're at the beginning of this. All the fake information is going to get better. And if you just look at this debate we're having this week with Robert Kennedy, who has no facts on his side, going on Joe Rogan and having tons of people agree with him on this vaccine stuff, I worry about just seeing that on steroids in an AI information world. And in your book, while I was encouraged by the positive examples of good things that could come from it, I was not so convinced your arguments for how we combat that. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So, well, part of the reason I may not have been as convincing is because I don't think we're there yet on the defense. Like we need to, to get there. So I wasn't arguing, it's was like nothing to worry about here. Yeah. It was the something to worry right. about we need to set up against it. Part of it is what I try to get people to understand is that the future as we develop this stuff is safer than the now. Because for example, imagine that you say whatever your particular assault on our cognition, our average person, cognition, whatever, and say it's kind of coming through, you know, kind of a browser equivalent of a media. And say that you had AIs, you know, running that were kind of like the equivalent of fact checker kind of AIs. And someone says, vaccines are a um, evil plot to chip your children, right? And it goes, okay, well, here are the institutions that you can get the facts from. It's the same people, by the way, that provide your medical care, you know, have caused you to have that over the last decades have increased our average life, have navigated, you know, kind of a set of things like, you know, kind of curing smallpox and a bunch of other stuff. And here's the facts. And they can help you with that because they can intercept. Like you go, well, I worry about AIs having a deep fake voice where they kind of like, it's my child calling me and says, and, you know, the AI interrupts on your phone and says, hey, this could be a deep fake thing. Ask your kid something that only you and your kid know, right, in order to cross check, <laughs> right, this. So the, the future evolution of the technology is a way to try to solve whatever specific misinformation problem that you're looking at. Now, that's true, but I don't mean it to sound easy because obviously we have to kind of get to the, well, what kind of fact-checking AI are we going to call it 80% of society agree with? You're never going to get to 95% because, you know, 10 plus percent is going to be, you know, Ted Kaczynski-ish, right? So it's kind of like, I don't mean they're going to be Ted Kaczynski. He's, yeah, the, sure. he's the one, but they're going to be like, oh no, like all these institutions, like the earth is still flat and, and people are yeah. just trying to tell us. <laughs> But you can imagine the Elons and the Joe Rogans of the world, you already see that now, like pushing back on that and saying, oh, well, you can't trust those institutions. And I have now all these other tools I can use to advance, you know, the truth about Paul Pelosi's <laughs> yes, gay exactly. lover or whatever. Look, the short answer is what you have to be doing is working on improving the institution. 
So the usual argument that people make, trying to be like, oh, look, the institution failed here. It's untrustworthy. It's like, oh, look, a doctor did a misdiagnosis. Don't listen to doctors. Like, oh my God, is that bad reasoning? <laughs> right? And so you got to go, whatever the level of emotion and fear about that one thing. And it's like, ah, it's like, we all need to say, how do we collectively improve the institutions? I mean, for example, part of what I've gotten out of discussion with conservative friends is I have an ear now to where, you know, call it mainstream media, does have some interesting biases that irritate the conservatives justly. And I was like, oh, and I've now kind of learned to do that because you listen and you go, okay, I get it. There's some biases here. That doesn't mean that everything that comes out of their mouth is wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a terrible, terrible piece of reasoning. This is where you could tell that people are being motivated by emotion, not by reason, because otherwise you're smart. You should be able to understand that. Like, for example, institutions are how we determine truth. It's how we build science. It's not that every scientist is somehow a genius and a truth teller. It's that the institution of the practice of how we do it is how we make progress. Think about that when you get in your car. Without science, there's no cars, right? So we have to be focused on how do we improve those institutions and failure points don't invalidate the whole institution. It just says there's more that we need to do to be improving them. Part of what you're talking about, people using emotion and not rationality, that's possible when you live in a world without real consequences for using emotional and not rationality. And one of the things we have now is a world where basically you can walk around saying the earth is flat and the Illuminati lizard people are running the government. There are no consequences for that anymore, like socially or professionally. It's just like, yeah, you know, you do you. You believe in QAnon? That's fine. You can be elected to Congress. I don't know. That to me speaks of like larger societal decadence. And I wonder how a decadent society self-corrects on this. Well, it's one of the things that I've been particularly irritated by the MAGA folks, because I think those self-correction is usually to come together against an external threat. Like the very obvious thing would be, you know, Putin is, you know, an evil dictator who is doing a war of genocide in Ukraine that is oppositional to everything we stand for as Americans. And if you, like, this is one of the very few times I say, if you're not oppositional to that, maybe you should find another country, like Russia, say, <laughs> right? It's like, that is evil and terrible, and we should come together. We shouldn't be going, you know, like, oh, this is a way we should play internal politics or other kinds of things. It should be the, like, those people are dying and suffering with artillery bombardment. And we should be going, it is great that one of, you know, President Biden's accomplishments is pulling NATO together and helping those folks. That is great. And like, just like using the external crisis. Now, the problem, of course, is we're in fracture. And so as opposed to coming together in the external crisis and reforming and institutions and going, oh, well, you know, you're not so bad, <laughs> right? That per evil person over there is the person that we should unite against. How do we get there? Look, I think we, like, roughly speaking, when you're in this kind of crisis, I think the thing that everyone has to think is if you're not part of the solution at getting us to try to come together again, then you're part of the problem. It's precisely the reason I like the work that you guys do here, precisely the reason why, you know, I don't go on, you know, many podcasts and so forth, but I'm here because it's really important to do this. And we, like, you can't go, oh, they're going to do it. It's like, no, we're going to do it. I'm going to do it. And that's the only way I can possibly see through. But it's hard, by the way, because it's a collective action dilemma. And, and it's easy to be depressed. And it's easy to say it's not fixable. And it's like, well, OK, like, 
thanks, I'd actually rather revive our republic than, you know, follow Rome down into the dustbin of history. I want to ask just a couple other random AI things outside of the democracy space. One that I'm passionate about music. I thought your chapter on music and art was super interesting. Uh, you know, there's an example of like a musician, uh, I don't think you named them, who was very concerned about the threat from AI and then was like, oh man, the experience of working with AI was so cool because, you know, they're able to ask the AI to, you know, give me a couple hooks, you know, and now I'd have more options to choose from and then I could riff on that. I thought that was a super interesting positive. My negative concern that I'm interested on your, just your take on the whole picture is, Maybe this means I'm an old guy now, times are passing me by, but I'm very <laughs> concerned about looking into like my child is in high school in 10 years and the top 40 is not actually humans creating original art, but it's like Madonna AIs repackaged for another generation. And to me, there's something very sad about that. And so I want you to kind of buck me up and just sort of talk about the questions facing the you know music and art world. Well, so I have the following very strong belief that I have evidence to argue for, which is, look, what do human beings care about is other human beings kind of interacting. And so, for example, we have more people today watching chess matches than we've had any time in our past. And yet, there are no human chess players who are in the league of computers. And we don't watch computers playing with computers, right? Because we have an interest in that human connection. Right. Um, and it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes watch anime and other kinds of things, sure. but I think that the that the human connection is possible. And look, I do think that it'll be amplified. You got the Paul McCarthy doing the last kind of Beatles song, which is kind of cool and so forth. But I think ultimately it'll be the amplification of connections with human beings. And I think that's where many of us kind of locate. It's one of the reasons why, like, one of the things I find entertaining is when a technologist comes to me and says, I have this metaverse and we're all going to be talking to each other when we're avatars. And I'm like, no, actually, I prefer this team Zoom environment where I can actually see people's faces. And I prefer it in person even much more, you know, as part of that. And I think that's a general human thing. It doesn't mean that it will be 100% of the time, but I think that will be there. And, you know, even as it gets better and better and becomes more and more of an amplifier, I think we go just, you know, steam engine of mind, steam engine of music. It's like, okay, how do I then do even more amazing things with it? And so I have the conviction that we're there. I would find it disturbing if we all kind of go to our own little cubicle and go, okay, human beings go away and I live in my little fantasy metaverse thing. That would be disturbing. I just don't think it's actually a real possibility. I mean, look, X people, you'll find, I found one. This person's yeah, doing it. Right. Well, okay, you found one. Who cares? <laughs> All right, before we get out of this, do you want to talk about the speed and acceleration of AI change? Because this is one, I mean, I've been writing about AI stuff basically since the minute the first ChatGPT came out. And I've been saying this for, you know, a year now. We will look back and say the single most important thing in, in 2022 was the emergence of ChatGPT. It's that significant. Talk to me about why we shouldn't be afraid that the rate of acceleration, because as you said, this stuff changes month to month is is so fast as to make the medium-term future almost unknowable. Because I think we can see two to five years out. It seems hard to know what this looks like in 10 to 15 years. And that it's hard to guard against, right? It's hard to do the stuff that you're talking about, which, right, which is to push back against the threats if it's moving so fast. So I don't think it's all good that we're moving fast. There is some goodness, like the speed at which we get a medical assistant, a tutor, and every 8 billion people on the planet, less than 1 billion have access to doctors, get the other 7 billion 
you know, kind of a medical assistant through smartphones, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of that is a huge human suffering. The sooner that happens, the sooner that we get to completely autonomous vehicles. Like in the U.S., we save up to 40,000, you know, human fatalities, let alone injuries and all the rest per year. Like all of that stuff is real important reason that there's benefits on speed. But obviously on the navigation of the landmines and other kinds of things, you know, you go, oh, I know how I'm going to drive safely. I'm going to double my speed. You're like, okay, that sounds a little foolish. It's not without its cost. Unfortunately, I think that the natural pacing of this, because if I know anything about human nature, it's we divide into groups and we compete. It's not just, you know, uh, sports teams or companies or industries, but countries and all the rest. And, you know, and this stuff is afoot. And I think because the better safety stuff exists in the future, if if some people try to slow down and other people don't, the people trying to slow down in order to navigate the risk, the risk will be less navigated. You want the people who are concerning about the risk to be going as fast as everyone else is in order to be doing this. It's not like, oh, no, no problems. You know, close your eyes, hit the accelerator. Look, the accelerator is going to be what the accelerator is. There's some features and virtues for it. And by the way, once we get there, I think there's all kinds of ways we can make the future more safe than now, but we're going to be navigating. And so that's why to pay attention to the questions and to navigate well as part of doing it. That's the reason why the speed stuff, as I mentioned at the outset, is one of the things you've been writing about that I'm most sympathetic to, because I'm like, nah, you look, if you could wave a wand, if wishes were fishes, and just cause everybody to move at half speed of development while we're thinking about how to navigate the risk, that'd be great. But that's not the way the human beings work. And that's not the way the world works. So it's like if wishes were fishes. <laughs> One more dystopia, and then we'll get to rapid fire. JVL mentioned paperclip theory in a recent triad. I forget if it was on a podcast or in the book that you rejected outright the paperclip theory. So maybe I'll just, I'll just let you kind of explain what that is and tell us why we shouldn't be worried that AI is going to kill us all. <laughs> so paperclip theory is fundamentally that you set AI some objective that seems totally innocuous, for example, making paperclips. And then in, in following that objective, it does heinous things, right? So it's like, oh, well, in order to make all these paper clips, I should get rid of all these human beings. You know, you know, in very broad brush, obviously. There's they need to details. use their teeth for the, you know, paper <laughs> yeah. clip, right? Yeah, whatever. Um, and so part of the thing is, even if you were to set that for the vast majority of systems today, they just basically couldn't do anything. They're too brittle. It's not possible. Usually you get into this is when it's a super intelligence that's kind of running everything is the kind of thing that you worry about. You would hope that if you had a super intelligence that was running things, which by the way, we should be very careful to say, okay, we're going to let this thing run everything. By the way, be very careful about any one human being saying you're going to run everything too, right? Like hopefully it would not, it would go, oh yeah, that paperclip thing, that's really stupid. I'm not going to do that. You know, because like, for example, part of how we, you know, when we think about how do we design systems that are kind of like pro-human and say, hey, tell us how you can elevate humanity and tell us how you can, you know, kind of help everyone. Tell us how you're going to avoid doing bad things. And like, if we have credible belief that that actually, in fact, how the system's working, that's part of how you get there. And so part of the reason why I think the paperclip theory is I think it's almost like a on the spectrum simplification of what AI kind of functions, you know, it kind of goes back to like Dr. Strangelove. It's like, we're going to hook up the AI to determine when it should trigger all the nuclear bombs and we're going to let it run by itself. You're like, who thinks that's a good idea? A lot of steps. <laughs> a lot of steps in there. You know, like, no, 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 not really not. <laughs> right. Okay. We're into the rapid fire section. Are you ready? Reed Hoffman. Sure. 
author, impromptu, founder of LinkedIn, formerly on part of OpenAI. Thank you for the time. Here we go. Rapid fire. Number one, everybody gets an issue you've changed your mind on as a grown-up to show that people can grow and evolve since your time at Stanford. It's a long list, but you know, I'd say the primary one is a classic educated, you know, kind of like, you know, only in the education system, I've become a ardent believer in capitalism, right? Like I used to say capitalism is a bad philosophy and a good technology. And now I think it's like, it's a good technology and it has some very good philosophical elements. We're still improving it. And you know, I'm always up for a better idea, but like it's the current best system. Uh, one cheer for capitalism. What is the area of the future you are most unsure of? in the AI space. What what should we, this has been an optimistic chat, but what should we come away from with a little bit of concern? Uh, well, I'd say that I'm most uncertain by the fact that the level of panic causes us to do, like in change, causes us to do dumb things. Like a little bit of the discussion right now is like there's a bunch of very smart, well-meaning people say, well, all this stuff should be open source. And I'm like, I'm not sure it should be open source because it's like an open source cyber hacking tool. I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> who um who has had a better 30 year run the gay mafia or the paypal mafia well i have an interest in that <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty competitive i think we're the two best mafias out there the italian mafia hasn't done so great the last 30 years the paypal mafia and the gay mafia things have been going pretty good final question lots of reports lately about aliens ufos there's a whistleblower i want to know where is reed hoffman on the question of aliens yes no or maybe well, all of the stuff that's in the media is just incoherent from a viewpoint of, of logic and reason, which is, <laughs> you know, and by the way, uh, like one of the funnier things is I know that one of an American company kind of lost track of one of its balloons that it was using for Internet stuff, and it could track it through people doing UFO sightings, right? You know, it <laughs> Like it just literally going to social media. <laughs> We're up in Montana yes, exactly. now. <laughs> right. And and people are so quick to jump to the UFO thing where you're like, look, Occam's razor, right? So look, is it possible? Look, I think there's very definitely possibly alien intelligence in the universe. Like that seems very possible. And there's a Fermi paradox and all this. But you're like, if you think that someone could get a spaceship here with biological things in it, their level of advancement is so high. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that it's like, oh, and so we we caught them like Bigfoot, you know, hovering over this. Like, what? <laughs> right? Like, you know, and you go, well, maybe it's like like they sent a little robot probe that landed and there's a material somewhere. I was like, okay, that's possible. But that's not any of the UFO sightings. And people say, well, but we don't know what the UFO was. It's like, well, like a weather balloon that you didn't predict and then had a weird lighting thing to it. I mean, it's like, like, just think about this a little bit, right? But people love conspiracy theories. And they're like, ah, those people are lying to us. It's like, generally speaking, if you think you're believing a conspiracy theory, you should really think through why conspiracy theories are very difficult and almost all false, right? <laughs> so, like, you really have a very high <laughs> evidentiary belief to go to a conspiracy theory. Yeah, my outcomes race on the UFOs is if there were UFOs and Donald Trump was right in on them, we would know about <laughs> oh, them by sure. now. This is not a man known for keeping his secrets. 100%. That's my outcomes race. <laughs> Read off and thank you so, so much. We'll see you back here on Wednesday for the regular next level. Catch you later. Thank you. Thank you.